Welcome to the Black Psychologist Podcast, where we have conversations and give insight into human behavior and promote mental health wellness. I'm Dr. Kyle Osborne, and with my co-host, Dr. Jason Coleman, we'll discuss health topics, everyday life issues, and try to give you a better understanding of yourself, other people, and the world around you. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully you'll leave with some information that'll have you live in your best healthy life. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. And welcome back to the Black Psychologist Podcast, episode 13. We are rolling. Uh, first and foremost, thank you for tuning in and watching and subscribing. You know, the numbers are growing and we couldn't be happier. So thank you again for watching on YouTube, for listening on Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, all the Google podcasts, all those things. Uh, we appreciate all that, guys. So uh, episode 13, here we are. And uh, I am your humble host, uh, one half of your host, hosting duo, Dr. Kyle Osborne, your hosting clinician. And of course, I'm never, ever here by myself. I'm here with guys want to be him. Girls think they can change him. The <laughs> one and only Dr. Jason Coleman. How are you, brother? Hey, man, what's up, man? What's going on, bro? How are you? Hey, man, I'm good, man. We're here, you know, in the middle of the week, man. We out here doing it, getting it done. Bro, can't complain, man. We got good weather in Philly today. Hey, man, listen, I'll take it, bro. I'll you take do. this all year round. Word, word, word. You know? So, uh, again, thank everybody for listening. Episode 13, we're about to get this thing started. All right? So, um, this past Saturday, R&B fans were treated to an amazing versus battle between two of the best female R&B groups to ever do it. We had Escape and SWV. You know, they were playing a lot of good joints all throughout the show. If you got an opportunity to watch or to listen, it was an amazing show. A lot of uh, classic throwback R&B joints uh, that a lot of us grew up listening to. However, during the course of the show, especially during the early portions in the first half, a lot of fans uh, noticed that Coco of, of SWV didn't seem like she was herself. Um, a lot of fans had commented and gave some feedback uh, during the first half of the show uh, that they noticed that occasionally or in, uh, discreetly, Coco, when she came um, and joined uh, when they introduced them, that she kind of discreetly wiped away her tears. Um, they noticed that she that her leg would, would be shaken at times. And, um, you know, to notice even when she first came out that she didn't have a mic like the like her other two, um, you know, part of the group. And so uh, that was noticeable. So um, I think even maybe even she got feedback from, you know, maybe from the viewers on IG and and, and, every, and all the other different platforms. And so what Coco did uh, shortly thereafter the show ended, she actually um, indicated on her IG page that the night before, while she's preparing for the show, uh, a woman was killed outside of her hotel that she was staying at. And she talked about it and briefly talked about it on her um, IG page. And I'm going to read what um, what she reported. She said, last night while I was preparing for the verses, uh, a lady outside my hotel window um, was shot. She said to see and to hear the four shots and then seeing her laying on the ground and all this blood was unbelievable. Then when I got to the venue, I had a really bad anxiety attack, literally crying and screaming. Yeah, y'all saw me looking uncomfortable and irritated during the first half of the show. But if it wasn't for my son, I probably wouldn't have been out there at all. 
Thank you for calming me down and understanding my mental. So uh, that's what Coco released. And, you know, um, you know, a lot of people, some of the uh, feedback and love she was getting from a lot of the fans were were was it was amazing, you know, to see that that outpouring of support. So, uh, Jay, when you uh, saw this and came across your desk, what were your um, your thoughts about this? Uh, well, I definitely, um, you know, felt for her in that situation. Um, I immediately started th- just thinking about like community violence, you know, in general and, you know, vicarious trauma. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Because, again, like this is the type of situation where, you know, individuals are going to interpret it differently. You mm-hmm. know, so one person can see somebody get into a car accident, kind of continue with their day. You know, somebody else, you know, seeing somebody laid out with the sheets over them, blood, all those things, those images and those things can kind of stay with you. Um, so I, again, I thought about both of those things, right? Because, and one of them kind of goes hand in hand with the other, right? Because I don't know, you know, where she was at, you know, so I don't really want to, I don't really want to kind of talk about the area, but we have a lot of communities where we see gun violence, right? Um, and individuals kind of similar to what we were, not conflating those two situations, but kind of what we was talking about before in terms of people not having a chance to heal, right? Sometimes when you see them situations over and over, you get used to seeing gun, hearing gun, about, you know, gunshot victims on the news or seeing people shot, the tendency could be to just move on, right? So you could see, see a lot of people saying like, well, it didn't happen to her. She didn't know the person, you know, why, why did that impact, you know, her performance, you know? Um, but again, when we talk about vicarious trauma, we got to understand, you know, things don't necessarily have to happen to you for you to have a traumatic response. So to me, this is like a classic case of it. Um, I got to give her a lot of credit for being willing to talk about it, right? And her family members for supporting her. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? And I think the point that people should take from this is that when you do experience trauma, it impacts your ability to do other things, right? Like perform, right? So singing, dancing, remembering her songs, her, her concentration, you know, um, her attention, all of those things obviously were effective, right? Because the fans noticed immediately, right? She forgot her microphone, right? Mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, you know, we got to be more sensitive just to kind of bring her home to our kids who see violent acts on a, on a, on a daily basis, right? They come home, we expect them to, to just jump back into their routine, right? Our kids who see things walking to school, coming back from school. Think about Chicago. You know what I mean? Think about some of those things, not to stick, not to, you know, paint the whole Chicago with a broad brush, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Some of those areas where they where they getting down. Think about what some of those kids gotta see coming back and forth to school and just move on from, you know. And there's a lot of people we've talked about it here, right? About some of the people that are on the ground, you know, with that coffee, hip hop and mental health and other things, right? Trying to help. Um, but it's because of this. It's because of community violence and vicarious trauma. So, um, you know, it's unfortunate that it had to happen, but I think it's good that she's talking about it. Yeah, like something that, that stood out for me is that it's good for us to keep in mind and, and maintain that awareness of that. You never know what somebody is pushing through. Right. right? Like you never know when they, when someone comes on stage or you see them in front of you, you never know what's going 
behind or what's going on in that person's, you know, um, what they just experienced. And you're right. This is tra- this is trauma, right? She witnessed a traumatic event, whether she saw the person that was killed or she heard the shots. And then you actually see, you know, someone that's, you know, been killed outside of your window. This is trauma. And, you know, without getting too much into, you know, attempting to diagnose her because, you know, we're not able to do anything of that nature. And I don't know her history and, and you know, haven't spoken to her in any form or fashion. But this st- looks like or appears to be like she would be experiencing similar to acute stress. Right. Bro. Like like you mentioned, she was she was feeling you know, irritated. She's feeling uncomfortable, you know, like noticeable by a lot of the viewers. And, you know, this is, you know, a lot of symptoms that reflect or look like someone that's experiencing acute stress, right? You know, within the first couple of days, you're going to experience those disassociative symptoms. You're going to feel detached or like emotionally unresponsive or, you know, feel uneasy or that increased heart rate. So if you're having trouble breathing or you're in you're experiencing an increased heart rate that usually resembles or looks like, you know, an anxiety attack, which is what she said she had, had experienced. And yeah, you're absolutely right for her to be able to go out on stage and be able to, you know, get immersed into, you know, the show. And, you know, I saw towards the end of the first half, she, um, she did the Patti LaBelle cover that uh, only you knew and she killed that note. You know, she like she hit that note the way only Coco can do. And for her to be able to do that, you know, considering what she had just experienced and she, you know, they kind of alluded a bit, alluded to it a little bit where they said, y'all don't know what, you know, I've been through or what, what's been going on for me to be here. You know, and then she was able to shine some light on it. You know, she was a lot of strength. It also shows a lot of strength and resilience on her part and with her family, right? Because she, sure. you know, she mentioned her son, she mentioned her family that were able to help her get through that. So just the power of, you know, her family and that social support to help her get through it. I can't imagine, you know, being in that situation and like, 24 hours, less than 24 hours, I got to get ready to be in front of millions of people to do so. So um, I think it's definitely something we have to keep in mind of when you see somebody in front of you and you kind of see them off, right? You kind of see them, you know, displaying some atypical behavior. They're usually outgoing and they're not. Yeah, there's something else going on there, right? Like you just mentioned, whether it be Chicago, whether it be Atlanta, whether it be Philly, you know, it's hot right now, unfortunately. And like when you have kids that see this, they have to walk past it every day. And then you expect them, like you said, to go to class and focus on the lesson at hand. Now nah, it's, that's not the way it goes. You know, if they are able to do that, that means that, you know, that's a separate problem in itself. That means the kids are probably being desensitized and they're actually able to, to do that because they become so used to it, which is a problem. So, um, you know, for me, I'm hoping that being that it's, you know, it just just took place. We're at about, you know, a little less than a week of when um, she said the, the issue or the incident took place is that I'm hoping that in addition to her family support, I'm hoping that she's able to talk to somebody because, you know, and I know that for those if this is acute stress, then, you know, and she's already experiencing some of those symptoms like, you know, the uneasiness, the, the you know, irritability, maybe some flashbacks and truth thoughts, whatever it might be. You know, I hope that she seeks out professional help, that she's able to talk to a counselor or a therapist to get in front of it, because, you know, and I know if you don't and these symptoms continue to manifest, they can manifest into PTSD right after 30 days or a month or so. 
So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, she's able to get the support that she needs professionally and she gets it to her family. Um, but yeah, my heart goes out and absolutely, man, she, that is the symbol of resiliency that she was able to get out there and, and perform after what she saw. I mean, the only thing I would kind of add is I think, you know, this, because of her stature, you know, this could go a, a long way in terms of like kind of breaking down stigma kind of brick by brick for lack of a better term. And, you know, I just say that because when we when we bring it to like a bigger issue of community violence, you know, there are probably a lot of people. Well, not probably. There are a lot of people suffering in silence. Right. Because mm -hmm. they either feel like, you know, it's something that they really shouldn't talk about or that nobody really kind of cares about. Right. Um, and we're talking about serious things. Right. We're talking about the difference between living in an environment where, you know, you can expect safety, you know, and living in an environment where you can't. And that's a very big thing, right? In terms of um, whether you're going to be hypersensitive, you know, to a threat um, and kind of how these symptoms are going to be expressed, right? How early they're going to be expressed, how prominent all of these things. So um, not to get into it too deep, but I just think that um, for somebody of her stature to kind of address it in this, in this, in this manner, um, it may go a long way in terms of other people feeling comfortable to talking about it or other people kind of picking up the baton and, you know, kind of addressing this issue. Right. Because there's a lot of people that are going to experience that experience in vicarious trauma, whether it be through community violence, COVID-19, you know, and residual impact of that and just a bunch of things. So, um, yeah, you know, good luck to her. Yeah, definitely uh, a lot of bravery on her part. So. Uh, we wish her the best and hopefully, uh, like we, we talked about, she gets the support that she needs. Keeping with the music front, um, Wale, you know, very, very talented rapper. I'm a big fan of Wale in, in his work. Uh, so Wale, some time ago, you know, he talked about some of the issues that he's experienced, some of the issues that he's seen from other artists in, in the music industry. And uh, as far as dealing with a lot of stress and, and mental health issues. And he says that, um, you know, the record deals should come with mental health insurance. You know, he mentions a lot of the constant negative comments and the feedback and, you know, the attention that the music artists are exposed to um, and how difficult and how stressful it is to kind of navigate the music industry. So he feels that, yeah, with, um, you know, you get your record deal that everything, you know, that a lot of aspiring artists are, are waiting to get and they work so hard to do and get and achieve that it should come also with, you know, um, mental health insurance. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, I mean, before I even respond to that, you know, Wale, Maybach music representative, you know, yeah. DMV. Um, of course I like Wale, of course. Um, he speaks from his heart and he's always been, you know, that's not me kind of making just a broad statement. He, he kind of speaks from his heart. He's passionate about stuff he believes in. So I'm going to speak to the intent and not necessarily to um, whether it's realistic or not. All right. I'm not going to pretend to say that I'm like an expert on contracts. I don't know that 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 musical artists deserve specific mental health insurance. I don't know that I agree with that point now. I know that I agree with, I think that it would be reasonable for them to have the same access to the executives that hire them to that. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Um, now for them to have a specific plan because their job is so stressful. No, I don't support that. I'm sorry. Like that, that, that's where the passion kind of overrides reality to a sense. Right. Because 
in that sense, it's like everybody would that has a stre- high stress job should have extra mental health insurance, right? Surgeons, firemen, right? These are high stress jobs. And some people will tell you a little bit more stressful, you know, than signing autographs and, and having the pressure to put out a number one album, not, not diminishing people's creative abilities. You understand what I'm saying? But there's right. a difference if you're on top of somebody's house trying to save a baby and you know what I mean? You, you, you trying to make the next thing rock and KOD. It's a little different, right? So, right, right. But right. like I said, I'm going to speak to the passion and the, the, well, to the intent of the statement, right? So I agree with the intent. Um, I think artists should have access, you know what I mean? And I think that record labels should definitely support artists that have mental health issues, right? Um, but should they have like a specific plan for them and be prioritized because of their stressors? No. <laughs> so my, my thought process on it was I, f- I believe that they should have mental health insurance the same way how, like you said, um, anyone else that works for the record label has health insurance, right? Yeah. The, the first thing that I thought about was were athletes, right? So athletes, um, which tend to be synonymous with music, right? You got artists, you know, that want to be athletes, athletes that want to be artists, you know, they're all entertainers, right? To, to some extent. Right. And, you know, the first thing that popped into my head was that NFL players, NBA players, MLB, they all have insurance while while they're with the teams. Right. So while you're with the team, you they they give them they have insurance. They're covered. Right. Not even just if they get injured, but they are actually given an health plan that also includes mental health. Right. The same way how most people work. However, the big difference with that is they have all these players. They have a collective bargaining agreement. Right. So each league has a players association. Mm -hmm. So they have a union. They have a players association that fights for them or organizes or agrees to these things ahead of time, right? Or for everyone that falls underneath the, whatever the, the sport umbrella. So that's how they're able to obtain it. Unfortunately, music artists don't have it. So I don't know if that's something that would ever take place as far as them getting established with uh, an association or um, some type of uh, union, but I do feel and believe that they should have insurance like just overall, like medical insurance, but absolutely mental health insurance. Not not so much that their job is more stressful than say, like you mentioned, like a fireman or a surgeon or anything, but just so they have coverage, just because if something were to take place, we tend to see these adverse reactions, right? We tend to see them indulge in a lot of different vices and things because they're on the road, they're on all these different places. And I don't believe I'm I'm not a music artist. I'm not really plugged into that world, but I always wonder like, well, are they covered, right? Because they don't have a regular nine to five or they don't have a, an organization that they belong to that says, hey, you know, while you're out on the road, if something takes place, you know, you witness a traumatic event, something, whatever the case may be, here, you can go to the hospital or you can get signed up with this therapist and you're not paying out of pocket, right? Right. I always looked at it like, well, if you work for if you're signed to Interscope, right, you, you signed to Dre, you signed with Kendrick, you signed, you know, the media artists and relations associate who works at Interscope, they got insurance. They got a 401k plan. They got all these other different things. But you mean to tell me that the artist who's on the road and yeah, sure, he's probably making a lot more money off of shows, record deals, whatever may be happening. But that person doesn't have coverage. So in that sense, I agree with Wale where it's like, well, 
they have to be. I think they should be afforded some type of coverage if something were to take place. You know, but not. I don't know if they need to have something specifically for music artists to say, well, your 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 mental health coverage is going to be X, Y, Z, and the third, and it's going to be different from any other Interscope employee or Def Jam employee because they they just work in the corporate side of it. So that's that's kind of like my thought process when I when I read it. I mean, I again, I that's why I said I think they should have access to every the same coverage everybody else has in the building, right? Right. Um, but then when we start saying, well, they should be prioritized because, you know, we got, because what he was talking about in the article, I mean, his example, right? He started talking about Instagram and negative comments, right? right? And that's part of the stress of the job. And that's why I went to where I went in terms of talking about surgeons and firemen, right? Because when we start talking about stress of the job, Wale's argument falls apart very quickly. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Um, and again, I think they should have access to that, right? So, which means I, I'm agreement with you. If they're out on the road, right, employed by Epic, employed by Interscope, whatever, and they witness a murder, something traumatic happens, they should have access to services, right? But some level of personal responsibility is necessary, right? And I'm not painting all, I'm not saying all rappers behave irresponsibly, right, but they don't, right? Because they don't, but if somebody is like, and I go back to my previous example, firefighters got stress, teachers got stress, you know, principals got stress. If they go do do a whole bunch of drugs and alcohol, they just got to deal with the consequences of it. So you mean to tell me that, you know, somebody who's making millions of dollars, making songs, riding around because they choose to go buy pills and we and I, because they have more money and access. I got to pay for it. <laughs> I'm just being honest. So again, but let's be perfect. Let's be clear about what I'm saying. Right. Right. On the job. If, if you're in the arena and somebody gets, God forbid, trampled. Right. If, if and, and, and if you're on the, the tour bus, God forbid, like what happened to Tracy Morgan and something happens, mm. that's different. You know what I'm saying? If you're, just, if you just Joe Schmo and you deciding just to have a maladaptive coping strategy and your strategy is just to buy liquor at every stop and, and buy up all the drugs. How is that our problem, right? Because the man who works at, at Rite Aid and CVS, you know, he's not getting any extra insurance because of that. And he, and he may have more pressure, you know what I'm saying? Because he doesn't have the financial resources you have. So again, I, you know, I don't want to even pigeonhole substance use, right? Because there's a lot of other stressors that mm. could be going on as well. But my point remains the same. If your coping strategy is gambling, you know what I'm saying? And you go spend all your money, the record label shouldn't be responsible because you're because you're you're a gambling addict now. You know what I'm saying? Because if the man that works at McDonald's, if he goes and spends and you know what I mean, as hard as he works, he goes and spends his check, there's nobody for him to, to talk to about how he needs extra insurance and he needs it more. Dang. So I get, listen, that's why I said, I'm not killing Wale. I don't know. Wale, I, just, I don't know. Wale may have a problem with you after this. I'm not nah, sure. Man. Nah, man. <laughs> I love Wale. I love Wale. You know what I mean? <laughs> listen, shout out to Wale. He was wearing them phone posits. He was wearing the, the Nike phone posits yeah, before yeah. everybody else was. Yeah, he, he was. was. You're right. You're right. Out in DC. But serious, in terms of the seriousness of the, of the conversation, I do agree that, you know, they should be supported. You know what I mean? Um, but like with most arguments, sometimes you go down the rabbit hole. But what I was going to say is like one thing 
that they said that was important, like Kid Cudi, they had a quote from him in the article. And he was saying, I am not at peace. I haven't been at peace since you've known me. If I didn't come here, I would have done something to myself. Right. So, again, it, it brings us back to it's, it's kind of like we're always talking about this, how, you know, no matter how successful people are, or these artists are, you know, you don't know what people are going through. Right. Because um, most people would assume that Kid Cudi's life is great. Right. And I'm not saying his life isn't great, but I'm saying he probably he has days like everybody else where he probably wake up like all of us and the world is on his shoulders. You know, mm -hmm. um, so I always thought or would have thought it would have been indicative. And this turns into like, of course, a financial issue that given what artists go through, whether you're rap, country, R&B or what have you, I always felt or would have thought it would have been indicative. Maybe this is just me being optimistic or just foolish. I'm not sure of that. Like the record company, you would want to have like these services available, right? You would want to have given that what couldn't go wrong on the road and knowing what a lot of these artists get exposed to, right? Parties and other different things, you know, like you, you would want to, if you're the company to kind of reduce risk the same way that, a lot of sports teams do, right? They'll offer that. Now, it'll be up to the player whether they want to, you know, um, be involved or, 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 you know, take them up on these these services. But you would think that, like, hey, you know what? We have services available. Not that it would be through insurance, but it'd be like a situation where, like, hey, you know, before, th these are the things that are offered, right? Just so, I don't know, just as a to minimize or reduce risk. Because as you said, things can go left pretty quickly, depending on the artist, depending on what they get exposure to, depending on where they are and say, hey, you know what? Given whatever stresses you may get exposed to, we have these services available. And I'm not to say that they don't, but I would think just from a financial aspect and say, hey, you know, let's offer this. This may be the difference, like you said, if it, for a kid, Cuddy, who says he hasn't been you know, in a good place or it fluctuates with him, that he has someone that the record company is providing as a resource or support to. I don't know. I mean, I just thought that that would, that would make sense in a perfect world, but again, it does come down to finances and a lot of other different things we would have to consider. See, I don't know. This is the thing, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, right? The one difference between this and, and a lot of different other areas of business, whether we talk about like wall street, right. Or the Dallas Cowboys, right. Jerry Jones has an incentive to protect, his assets, right? Because if all his players aren't on the field, he's going to lose money. Right. Right. Lehman Brothers has an incentive, right? I'm not saying that they do everything, but they have an incentive to protect their employees, right? Because if they don't come in, they're going to lose the bottom line. Musical artists are viewed as expendable, right? And especially nowadays, where we don't have the longevity with careers, I, and this is going to sound very controversial. It's almost contraindicated for them to do those things, right? Because some of these rappers, to them, to the corporations, they're worth more deceased. Yeah, yeah you're right about that. Right? Yeah, a lot it, of sales go up, man. Let's, be, let's, let's look at Pop Smoke sales. If anybody who thing. thinks I'm being controversial, look at Mo3 sales after he died. Look at Pop Smoke sales after he died. Look at Lil Peep sales after he died. Yeah. Look at Digital That's Underground. It. Look at DMX sales after XXX they died. down. on. Yeah, all them dudes, you're right. So, and, the, and some of these dudes are dudes with catalogs, but but especially for the ones that don't have worldwide reach, a lot of these guys, bro, it, it's there are there are murals of pop smoke up in different countries, 
where I'm not saying his voice didn't re- reach before he died, but he wasn't immortalized. He's immortalized now. Mm. And it's unfortunate, right? Because the bigger issue is probably that black life is cheap in America. We, we don't have to go. We know that. You understand what I'm saying? But in terms of just the bottom line with the with the businesses, with rap especially, a lot of these artists, unfortunately, look at the sales. They're worth more to these countries deceased. So why would they protect their lives? Right? It's just a it's just a it's just a good thing to, to point out and debate. No, it's a but you make a good point. And and unfortunately it's a true point. Like we talked about, you know, the Nipsey hustles and all these other different artists. Unfortunately, they're more profitable when they have passed, right? right? Streaming goes up, record sales, all the you know paraphernalia, all these other different things go up after the you know the the artist has passed on, which is unfortunate. Um, but you know, like you said, the companies only care about the bottom line, and that's the money. So you know, hopefully, as things move forward, you know they can the music industry can start to do more as far as taking care of their artists. But I don't know, something for us to continue to monitor, you know. Something that we that's often talked about, like we were just mentioning, is music. We talk about in the barbershop. All right. So article came across our desk about a barber named Ray Connor. And Ray Connor in this article traces his ambition to being a barber back to when he was growing up in Detroit. You know, he was watching his mother watch um, battle drug and alcohol addiction. He experienced a lot of abuse. Uh, sometimes he would go to bed hungry and. He says in the article when he needed to get away, he went down to his barbershop for a fresh cut and companionship from his barber. He says that that relationship with his barber saved his life by getting him through some of the darkest days of his life. So Connor, fast forward, now is a barber based out of Tennessee, and he's focused on not only being a barber, but also being a mentor to other young black men facing adversity. So. He took the initiative by joining uh, a project called the Confession, the Confessed Project Barber Coalition. It's a nonprofit created to help black men and boys uh, become the best version of themselves by providing education on how to better take care of their mental health and give those same tools to support their clients when they come in the shop. What's your takeaway from this? I love this article. Uh, what were your thoughts about this, Jack? Uh, I mean, listen, I think it's a good thing. Um to see, you know, some people kind of on the ground taking this issue, you know, um, taking a lead in terms of the issue, like reducing stigma and even taking a step a step further. Right. Um, because, you know, they're kind of like learning skills in terms of of how to engage with their clients and, and you know, make them, I guess, get them more comfortable with like opening up and talking about, you know, their feelings and even connecting them to services. Right. Um, so I think it's good in terms of mentorship. Um, we all know in terms of the barbershop, like what that has meant in terms of culture and tradition, you know, specifically to African-Americans, um, you know, and I, I think it's a good place for it to be, right? Because if we look at the barbershop traditionally, you know, that's where we've gone to argue about sports, discuss politics, mm-hmm. you know, um, religion, you know, we eat there, we buy, you know, we, we buy t-shirts, we buy I mean, everything, all of those things. So, you know, we joke about it, but, you know, for a lot of people, me, me including, you know, I, I haven't been there in, in a while, you know what I mean? Because I got hair now, but the barbershop is just, a, it's, type that, it's that type of environment, you know, um, where we get, you know, a lot of our mentorship, right? And we get a lot of advice and a lot of that goes on. So 
why not bring mental health in, into that environment? You know, it makes perfect sense. Um, and it's funny because like I was listening to 98.7, the morning show, um, ESPN, the morning show last week. Yeah. And Keyshawn and, and Jay Will was talking to Alan Hahn about like black barbershops. Yeah, man. And Keyshawn was trying to tell him like, yeah, you know, we, you, you can buy a barbecue in there. You know, you could buy a mixtape, you know, you could, you could do, and you know, Anything. but the point he was trying to tell him like, you know, I'm gonna take you. But the point he was trying to make is that, you know, you can get everything in there. You know what I mean? You know, a lot of us, for those of us who are lucky enough, you know, to grow up with male figures, those are some, some fond memories we have is sitting in a barbershop. You know, with an older brother, older cousin, if you if you're lucky enough to have a father in your life, you know, uh, with your father and, and hearing those adult conversations. Right. Um, so to bring that into the barbershop, I think, is the perfect, you know, um, it's the perfect thing. And like they were saying, you know, they're not trying to be therapists, you know, but they but they could be a great bridge. So um, I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. Yeah, man. You know. Barbers are, are conversation pieces too. I don't I don't know if you remember when um in our first when we first met, when we were sitting in the back of that um that writing class, right? And you know, we were talking, you know, we kind of gave ourselves like the nod, like, okay, there's more of us <laughs> in this joint, right? And and you know, since you weren't from the area, you know, you asked me about barbers. That was like one of the first conversations that we talked about, right? Well, you you, like, you asked me, you was like, yo, look, yo, you from the area. Like, I need, yo, where where, where could I get a cut at, right? And I gave right. you a couple of places and stuff. And, you know, that's, you know, that's how it starts. And, you know, barbers, I always look at were like the original people that were placed in like that unspoken therapist role, right? right? Because you got in the chair and you talked about anything. Right. You talked about anything and it was wide open. Right. It wasn't like you were just having that conversation. Like you and the barber could have that conversation. But, you know, you got the barber next to you. You got the people waiting. You got <laughs> folks that are just there. Right. Like yeah. for, for me, like it, it's the barbershop is the original safe space for right. us. Right. Especially for black men. Like we talk about any and everything at the barbershop stuff that you don't have to worry about it not being pc controversial anything like we're talking about anything at the barbershop and you know like you said i think that's the perfect it's the perfect place for you to have that discussion about mental health right right? because you're going to have so many different views and and as um as ron talked about in the article you know you talk about things that you've been through, right? You talk about, you know, your family members, yo, my cousin is on drugs. My, you know, my homie did this the other day. Like you find out what's happening in the community, what's happening in the neighborhood, whose mom is doing what, who's dating who, all these other different things goes down at the barbershop. Like you said, you can buy anything. Everybody comes through there. And I feel like absolutely like to have a mental health discussion and to have these individuals who are getting training on, you know, not just to listen and have conversation, but to like listen with intent, right. To have that empathy and to be able to, you know, have resources and say, Hey, like when someone comes in and they're talking about some of their struggles, it's like you share, they're sharing their struggles. And then it's like, Hey, you know what? Is this beyond like their training, their expertise? Because they said it. They said they're not therapists, which I was really happy to say that they actually distinguish and say we're not therapists. And if it goes beyond what they've been trained to do and show support, they have resources, man. Like they give out, you know, resources. Oh, you know what? This is this is therapists over here. This support group over here, X, Y, and Z. And I feel like that's so beneficial because of how many people, when you think about it, go through the barbershop, right? 
How many people see the different barbers? How many people just kind of pop through when they're they're there? Like you, they're not even getting a cut. Like they just right. come through, say what's up, you know. Like you said, talk about sports, talk about other different things, politics, COVID. I know me and my barber, we've talked about like COVID. We talk about the mask thing because they've had to adjust to it, right, with the spacing right. and other different protocols. So you know, it's like I feel like that's the the perfect place for you know to be able to model and have those discussions about mental health in the, is in the barbershop. Right. And then on another note, in terms of bringing breaking down stigma, like me personally, right? Like my barber, that's my man, you know. So he don't do it all the time, and it's all love, you know what I mean. But if I'm in there and he tell people what I do, you know what I'm saying, or we're having the type of conversation about mental health, and you know, like you said, everybody's kind of a part of the conversation. So right. it's not unusual for if we're having that type of conversation for him to tell the next person or what, like, yeah, you know, my man, you know, he's a psychologist or he's a therapist, you know, and then you bring in, then you start bringing in other opinions in terms of what they think about mental health, you know, um, and you have those opportunities, right? Because those questions that we were talking about that people asked, like I've gotten them while I was sitting in the barber chair, right? Right. About the things that you would think about, oh, you know, my, Somebody sitting there waiting for a cut. Oh, my my cousin got schizophrenia or this person or that person. And they're talking to you about family support, right? Mm-hmm. Or about their experience, right? Um, so you have those opportunities or they just are surprised to see you doing that, right? So it's it's in there. And, and so there might be questions about, oh, you know, I didn't, you know, I haven't really seen a lot of brothers doing this or, you know, black people or people of color or whatever. And you have that opportunity, right? on so many levels. So, um, and then you have people who, you know, they don't want nothing to do with mental health and they don't, and after they find out, they don't want to talk to you and they don't want you in there. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but you know, um, you're going to find that anywhere, you know, um, with that resistance, but, but on a serious note, again, you have that opportunity to break down that stigma. So, um, it's just so many ways that it could be beneficial, um, you know, to kind of, bring those kind of services into the barbershop or just, you know, help people, you know, have access to those while they're in there. So, yeah. Cause you know, I, the thing that I don't think a lot of people, we really, we really realize it when we go into the barbershop, but one of the two things that when we're having discussions at, at the shop is that you're looking for two things. You're looking for validation. And you're looking for positive reinforcement, right? right? You're going in there, no matter what you're thinking, like you're looking for somebody to agree with you, right? Whether it be right. about sports, whether it be about politics, whether it be about girls, whether it be talking about, you know, your marriage or relationships, like you're looking for validation for whatever your, your thoughts are about it. And it, it's a, like you said, it's an opportunity. It's a teaching moment, right? Like, you know, when they find out what we do, they'd be like, for real? Like, oh, you mean like you're a doctor? Like you, you do, <laughs> right? They ask the question, you, you, so you could do meds and then you kind of clear things up and you talk about, like you said, the therapy, it's a teaching moment, right? It's a perfect right. opportunity to like, yeah, you know, have these conversations. They, they're able to ask questions, right? Like, well, what do you think about this? Or like you said, my mom had this or this family member, they ask about different drugs. They ask your question, you know, your opinion on it. And like, they really do listen because you're in the shop, right? Now you have not only they they know who you are because they've seen you in the shop like for years, but now you have the expertise that's attached to it. Right. You show them right. the education. And like even when I told my barber about like our podcast, you know, I, it was like episode two or three. And I'm like, listen, like, you know, got this podcast and asking about advertising in the shop. And he's like, well, why you ain't tell me episode one? Like you, you, you three episodes <laughs> late. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's, it's that support. Right. 
like yeah. you said, you can come in and, you know, and tell people about what you're doing and promote. And, and you know, that's also another thing of the shop of in addition to being the safe state, man, it, it's love. Like you said, you get the opportunity. You go, might go in like your brother's going to bring you in. But then you gain so many different people right. and friends and extensions of your family because you see them every week. Right. You see them every couple of weeks when you go in there, you see the same people. They ask you about your family. They ask you about it's. It becomes such a great sense of community at the shop. And, you know, what I liked about this is that this barbershop, they do workshops there. Right. They do workshops, they do meetings, you know, they're help. You know, they're they're affecting so many people in so many different ways and getting them the resources. And, and it's great. Right. Because the people are already there. Right. Right. You already have that respect and that trust, that relationship with your barber. And now if he's able to give you some information on how to live a, a healthier life, you're talking about your mental health and he's getting that word. People are prone to listen. Right. So, you know, I'm I'm loving this, man. I'm loving it. I'm about to get at my barber and ask how come he's not involved in this, because I think, <laughs> you know, the article said that they're like in 16 different cities. And I didn't see Philadelphia. I didn't see my barbershops on, on the list. So I feel like my barber's slacking. And I'm definitely going to tell him to listen to this episode. So he yeah, can yeah, I'm gonna him out to, right now. I'm going to have to talk to my man, too, because he'd he be giving me, definitely be giving me some good advice. So, you know yeah, I mean? you know, but it, it, it serves as a model for, for black men and, and boys to be like, yo, it's it's OK. Right. It's OK to open to openly talk about your thoughts and your feelings, and your emotions, because like, we talk about anything else in there. Right. Right. So. Yeah, it's already kind of setting that model in it. It's just now, okay, now this is also a good space. It's okay to talk about some of the real things that are going on in your life. So, um, so yeah, I'm I'm hoping that this continues to grow. Um, we'll continue to watch this, and this is just a really dope initiative. Like this, this is great, and I I love along like with the with the broga that we talked about a couple episodes ago, and the coffee shop. Like I love seeing ventures like this. That are getting into our community and, and getting and like you said, reducing the stigma and getting information out, man. So um I'm loving this. This is great. Yeah, you know? yeah. Definitely a good. So a couple episodes when we had Dr. Ashley on, you know, we talked about one of the main questions that we always get when we tell people that we're therapists, um, is uh are you reading my mind? Are you are you psychoanalyzing me? <laughs> I think probably next in line after that question that I typically get is people will ask me, well, do therapists go to therapy or do we just know how to handle our own issues based off our training? Right. And, you know, minds is a hard. No, we go to therapy also. Right. Absolutely. Um, so this stems from an article that came across our desk um, in which a therapist who's worked um, in the field for almost 20 years, and uh, she's written four books on mental strength and happiness, and all of them have been bestsellers. And in addition to that, she shares, like everyone else, that she's been through a lot of tough times. Uh, she mentions that in her early 20s, she lost her husband and her mom, and, um, you know, she you know, experienced a lot of grief and a lot of setbacks due to that um, during her time. And she lives a great life now. However, she still goes to see a therapist to ensure that she's living life to her fullest and to make sure that she's being, you know, the best type of clinician that she can. So I thought, you know, this was a good article. What were some of your takeaways um, as you were reading this? I, I mean, listen, I thought it was a good, a good one. Um, of course, the answer is yes. You know what I mean? But 
I thought it did a good job of kind of like chipping away at some misconceptions, right? Because when I talk to people, I think the first misconception a lot of people have is that therapy is for fixing people, right? And what I mean by that is like, yes, some people, it's just a fact. Some people go to therapy because they have certain deficits in certain areas of their life, right? So if that qualifies for you helping to them to fix themselves, fix my life or whatever, um, not to reference that in any way, um, then yes, that could, that could qualify for fixing, right? Right. But most people don't go to therapy for fixing, right? Most people are going to go for motivational purposes. People are going to go for more supportive purposes, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that is, I think is a good thing that they were talking about because they were kind of talking about, you know, she was kind of talking about how her therapist kind of helps her point out when she's thinking about things irrationally, right? Or, um points out times like where her emotions might cloud their judgment. And I think that's more of what a lot of therapists do, especially when you're in a longer term kind of relationship with people is that you're both got your hands on the wheel. You understand what I'm saying? Saying you may be guiding or helping the person guide the ship, but there's no fixing going on. You know what I mean? So I think they did a good job in terms of kind of pointing out, you know, why individuals go to therapy, right? Because I think that contributes to the stigma. If people think that you go to therapy because it's a deficit and there's something wrong with you, you know what I mean? Then that's going to be a different mindset than a person that's going um, for support, right? Because it's going to be the difference between somebody who thinks they're going to the medical doctor, right? Because I hurt my leg and I need you to fix it. And somebody who is done with their with their mark in terms of therapy and they're like yeah 86 percent is good but i want to get back to 98 percent it's a difference mm-hmm. you know what i mean um and it's it, it's something that needs to kind of be spoken on right because when we talk about like different races when we talk about socioeconomic status they view therapy differently totally and that affects who goes to therapy right because if i'm a rich person i am going to be in the gym saying yeah dr kyle you know what I pay Dr. J every week. That's my therapist, right? It's going to be, I'm going to be saying the same way. And that's my therapist and that's my trainer and that's my cardiologist and that's my uh, landscaper, right? Whereas, you know, other, other individuals may view it and they're hiding, right? Because they view it, they view it as if, you know, it's something that reflects negatively on them, right? So um, I think, that we got to kind of change that part in terms of the stigma. And I think they get, they did a good, good job of pointing that, that part out, you know? Yeah. I, I definitely think there's that, that misconception um, just because, you know, um, of our education and, and our expertise in this field doesn't make us immune to, you know, any type of emotional distress. Right. Um, you know, we're human beings. We experience issues just like anyone else. Right. Like you said, it's just because, you know, people were we're helping people through their issues and facilitating growth in other individuals doesn't mean that, you know, we're not experiencing that also. So like you talked about, you have that, you know, that kind of that black or white thinking where it's just like, well, the only people that get therapy are the folks that are mentally ill or crazy. And you have the people that aren't mentally ill or crazy and they're, they don't need therapy where no, there's a total gray area in between and everybody experiences issues, right? Unfortunately, we've all lost people. We've all, you know, experienced a lot of these stressors, you know, 
there's so much emotional distress that goes along with going to school, with work, with all these other different things. You know, I think about as far as, you know, therapists, absolutely, or clinicians, we absolutely should take the initiative or, you know, if we have the, the you know, opportunity to get therapy to do so. I mean, if you think about our line of work, I mean, you know, one would be our own mental health, right? Making sure that we're the best clinician that we can be so we can help others, right? We've always, we're always telling that to our, our patients to say, and our clients to say, listen, you have to take care of yourself. You need self-care. You right. have to do all these X, Y, and things like you just mentioned, making sure that you have all your areas of your life, your support, your medical doctor, your, your therapist, your, uh, your trainer, right? You have all these other different areas or all these different professionals helping you in these different areas. And absolutely, like we need that also, just like the the you know, the woman mentioned in in the article. Especially for us, I mean, we take on a lot of other people's emotional burdens as we work, right? And so that lends itself also to you know a period of isolation because due to confidentiality, due to HIPAA, due to all these other different things, we hear and see a lot of tough stuff, right? A lot of tough material that we get exposed to, you know, you, especially, you know, you see it with your assessments when you work with kids, you know, I work on an inpatient unit. I see a lot of, you know, chronic mentally ill individuals that are dealing with a lot of, you know, tough, severe symptoms. And it's not like we can run home and go tell everybody about that, right? It's not like we can go back, we can, you know, talk about all these different things. And depending on, say, if, you know, you're, as a clinician, where you're in the environment that you work at, like for those that work in private practice, they may be working by themselves. So when they hear a lot of tough information, they don't necessarily have a coworker to talk to, right? They may not be able to go out with somebody at lunch and be able to kind of decompress or kind of, you know, vent and get that refresher. So, you know, and then also difficult clients, right? You and I both have had difficult clients and unlike in customer service, you know, you can't just like refuse to serve someone just because they're not behaving right. you know, or their behavior is out of line, right? You can't just right. be like, all right, yo, you can't come back to the store anymore, right? Don't no, work like not, that. That's not the way it works. So we as clinicians, as therapists, I'm not complaining by any means. However, absolutely. Like, I think it's indicative that we do seek out that type of support. If we, you know, we have the opportunity to, we make it, like you said, kind of having that like the same way we treat our car. Right. You want to have that checkup or right. even just having someone like ourselves, like we get an opportunity to do that. You and I have an opportunity to talk about cases or talk about things that we're experiencing. So we have that peer support. But it's also good, again, for us to have a therapist or someone that we see to kind of help us manage through our own stuff. Right. Check up on ourselves, because, again, if I'm going through stuff, I'm not at my best. There's no way I'm going to be able to help this individual that's sitting in front of me that's trusting me to help them. That's a fact. You know, so um I really like this article. I'm I'm um this is this shines a light again on a lot of different things uh or those misconceptions, right? That you know either or black or white type of thinking or also just shows that yeah, we as clinicians that since we are doing and caring for a lot of the people, absolutely like we need, you know, to take care of ourselves in every aspect of things. So um I like I like this article. Yeah, I did too, man. A lot of good, you know, information, um, you know, and again, you know, um, I think it does a lot to kind of clearly talk about, you know, the differences between, 
you know, going for a specific for, for a specific reason, like grief, you know what I mean? Um, and kind of maintenance after that in terms of using therapy for that after. So go. Yeah. Yeah. I like the man. You know, honestly, I think once people I think it's the hardest, as you know, getting into that therapy part. Right. Like where it's like, you know, getting through that first couple of sessions and then realizing how I mean, I'm not trying to be biased, but how comfortable you can be in therapy. Right. Like I enjoyed being in therapy, my my personal experience, um, because I was just able to go in there and and talk about shit like stuff that I was going through professionally, personally. And it was refreshing to go through that. And, you know, our our mental health fluctuates. I don't I don't know if maybe people realize just as clinicians, again, just because we have our expertise and, you know, this high level of academic training that like our mental health doesn't fluctuate, you know. Like there are days where I feel like I'm mentally sharp, like I'm the best therapist and clinician in the world. Yeah. And then other days I feel like I, I'm a total imposter. I have no business. <laughs> <laughs> I have no business talking or helping anybody, you know, but it, it's helpful. Like when, you know, I get a chance to talk to you, you know, I talk to other, you know, other colleagues when I've been in therapy in the past to be like, hey, you know what? Like it, it's helpful to help me get through that. And, you know, I, I hope, you know, not only us, but any other clinicians um, that are in any type of health field also continue, you know, or take the opportunity to get therapy. Because, like you said, you don't necessarily, like you said, have to be broken or be fixed or have a particular issue. It may just be dealing with stress right. that you may be able to see and talk to a professional. So, um, yeah, this was this was um, this was good. I, I like the, a lot of things that they highlighted in this article. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely a good one. All right. So um, anything else that you uh, wanted to let the people know about? No, just um, of course, we want to thank everybody for the support. Definitely humble. Thankful for that. Um, I want to encourage everybody to continue to subscribe. If you haven't, we appreciate it. Um, thank everybody for listening, um, liking the videos and please share if you can. That's it. Absolutely. I highlight and echo everything you said. It is Mental Health Awareness Month. It's May. So please make sure that uh, you're taking care of yourself, guys. It's not easy out there. We have a lot of, you know, things are becoming less restrictive depending on what state you're in. Stress level is at all time high. Um, so, guys, please make sure you're taking care of yourselves, uh, your self-care. Um, and like Dr. J said, you know, we appreciate everybody listening, subscribing, watching. We're on all the podcast platforms, YouTube, subscribe, listen, feedback. Also, guys, we really love your feedback and your comments. Um, Dr. J and I have absolutely been emerged and been active responding to a lot of the comments and your feedback and your ideas. So keep those coming because we want to talk about things that are relevant to you and what's going on in your life. So. Um, Keep them coming. We appreciate all the support. All right. So uh, if nothing else, Dr. J, always a pleasure. I'll see you next time, my friend. All right, bro. I'm out. All right, bro.